This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. Well, it looks like we have almost a totally new crowd. Uh, this seminar is really a seminar where uh, you're building on previous lectures. So what we're going to study this afternoon is connected or linked with what we did this morning. Uh, but don't worry, those of you who are here for the first time, I'm going to review uh, the basic elements of what we studied this morning for about maybe 10 minutes. And then uh, we're going to get into the material that we have on the screen. Okay? So let's just bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for uh, the good meal that we've had, for the good fellowship, for a beautiful day. Just so wonderful to have so many of your children together in one place. Uh, I thank you, Lord, for all of the youth and young adults of the church who are serious about your message and about the mission of the church. Father, we ask that as we continue our study this afternoon that your Holy Spirit will be with us to guide our thoughts. Give us understanding. We ask also that you will give us open hearts that we might be willing to receive what we're going to study. And Father, we thank you for the privilege of, a of approaching the throne of the King of the universe. What an awesome privilege, knowing that you incline your ear to hear us, us sinners. We thank you, Father, for being with us and for answering our prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's review what we studied this morning. Those of you who were here are going to help with the review. Uh, we studied this morning the message to which church? The message to the church of Philadelphia. What church number is it? Six. Number six. And it comes after what periods? It comes after the dominion of Catholicism and the appearance of Protestantism, which means that it has to come after what date? 1798. But it is a church that exists before the second coming of Christ. Now the next church, the seventh church, is called? And what does it mean? It means judging the people or judgment of the people. So that must mean that the church of Philadelphia is the church right before the church of the judgment. Very well, right before the church of the judgment. Now what is placed before the church of Philadelphia? An open door. And where does that open door lead to? How many doors were there in the sanctuary? Three. Could it be the door that leads from the camp to the court? Why not? Because Jesus came to that door when he went to the cross. Because the altar represents the cross. And Philadelphia is the sixth church at the end of Christian history. Can it be the door that leads from the court to the holy place? No. When did Jesus go through that door? At, at Pentecost, he went through that door. Philadelphia's church, number six, at the end of human history. So it can't be the door uh, into the court, and it can't be the door into the holy place. So the open door has to be the door that leads into the most holy place. And we're going to see that that's the way that Ellen White understood it. And she was correct, because she sees it within its historical context. And then we also looked at Revelation 11, verse 19 which says the temple of God was open in heaven, and what was seen? 
the Ark of His Testament was seen. Okay, so the temple is open and the Ark of the Testament is seen. Uh, what apartment is that? It's the most holy place. Which trumpet? Interesting, trumpet number six. That's church six, trumpet six. Doors open, door opens, and you see the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. What day of the Hebrew year uh, did the most holy place open and reveal the Ark? On the Day of Atonement. So there we have an additional indication that um, the door that is opened uh, before Philadelphia, the sixth church, is the door that leads into where? Into the most holy place. And then we looked at Daniel chapter 7. You have all of these powers that rule, including the little horn, ending in 1798. And then what do you have? A judgment scene. Right? The father moves, sits on a throne, books are open, the judgment is set. Then Jesus comes in to where the father is to receive the kingdom. Is that the judgment? Yes. What does it mean to receive the kingdom? It's the same as the marriage, but what, what needs to happen in order for Jesus to establish his kingdom? He has to reveal who are genuinely his. You see, his kingdom is not a geographical territory. His kingdom are the subjects that belong to him. So when Daniel 7 says that he goes into the presence of the Father after 1798, same time reference as the Church of Philadelphia, the same time reference as Revelation 1119, the opening of the most holy place, he, Jesus goes in to receive the kingdom. It simply means that he goes to perform a work of judgment with the purpose of revealing to the universe who belongs to his kingdom. And what's going to happen when Jesus finishes examining all of the cases of those who professed his name? Is his kingdom going to be made up? Yes. And then probation will close. And the kingdom of Jesus will be complete because he's revealed who are his. You say, well, why does he have to reveal who are his? Don't we know that? No. Does the church have wheat and tares? Yes. Does the church have wise and foolish virgins? Does the church have good and bad fish? Does the church have people who have the appearance of godliness, but not the power of godliness? Does the church have even ministers who disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness? Does the church have people who say, Lord, Lord, but Jesus does not recognize as his? Yeah. So how do you reveal to the universe who is genuine and who isn't? By a process of what? Judgment. Exactly. And the judgment is not for God. Because God already knows the end from the beginning. The judgment is for God to reveal before the universe, before the second coming, who are the members of his kingdom. That's why the door is open before Philadelphia. That's the reason why the door is opened in Revelation 11 verse 19 where it says that the most holy place is open there. The Ark of the Testament is there. That's the reason in Daniel 7, Jesus goes in for the judgment to determine the subjects of his kingdom. 
And then we looked at Revelation 13 and 14, same sequence. Remember you have the same beasts of Daniel 7? You have a lion, you have a bear, you have a leopard, you have a dragon beast. By the way, the dragon beast has 10 horns, and then the beast rules for 42 months, same as the little horn. And then after the 42 months, the little horn receives a deadly wound. And then in the very next chapter, you have the first angel saying, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. Amen. There you have the same sequence all over again. And the judgment takes place in the most holy place. It's the Day of Atonement, the great Yom Kippur. Now, in Philadelphia, there were also uh, counterfeit believers. What are they called? They are called the synagogue of Satan. What are they called in Revelation 14? They're called Babylon. In other words, Babylon is the same as the synagogue of Satan. Are you following me or not? There are two different ways of describing the same group. Only with the church of Philadelphia, they're called the synagogue of Satan, whereas in Revelation 14, they're called Babylon. Now, um, Let's review one or two other things so that we're all on the same page. Uh, what does the expression synagogue of Satan really mean? Who are members of the synagogue of Satan? They say that they are what? They say that they are Jews, but they are not. Now, what kind of Jew are we talking about here? We're not talking about literal Jews. We're dealing with the church age. The plan for the Jews has passed, so it can't be literal Jews. Like Balaam is mentioned in the church of Pergamum. That can't refer to literal Israel, because we're in the church age. Jezebel, under the fourth church, cannot be literal Jezebel. You're not dealing with literal Israel anymore. You're dealing with the period of, of the Dark Ages. Are you understanding me or not? And so the expression synagogue of Satan, synagogue, which is a Jewish term, must refer to individuals who don't claim to be Jews, they claim to be what? They claim to be Christians, but they really are not. So is it necessary for Jesus then to distinguish between real Jews and counterfeit Jews, Amen. spiritually speaking? Amen. Yes, and that's what he does in the judgment. He distinguishes, he announces before the universe the difference between a genuine follower of his and a counterfeit follower of his. And let me ask you, how does a person demonstrate that they are a genuine follower of Jesus? We studied that this morning. By obedience to his law. And I was mentioning something really important this morning, and that is that... Um, the Christian world claims to love Jesus, but they don't like his law. That is a contradiction. Because the law is a transcript of his character. And so you cannot say, I love him, but I hate the transcript. You have to love, if you love Jesus, you have to have his law, love his law, because his law is a reflection of who he is in written form. So to reject the law is to reject Jesus. That's the characteristic of the synagogue of Satan. Now what truths are revealed in the most holy place? What truths? 
does the most holy place reveal that the law of God is still binding? What was in the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments. Was the earthly sanctuary a copy of the heavenly one? So must the heavenly sanctuary have the Ten Commandments? Yes. That's why our pioneers said, hey, this idea, they constantly had to fight against the Protestant idea that the law had been nailed to the cross. You look at our evangelists, our early evangelists, they constantly had to deal with the antinomians, those who said the law was nailed to the cross, the law was for the Jews, we don't have to keep the law because we're Christians, we're under grace, we're not under law. They constantly had to fight against this. Why? Because they went into the most holy place, and when they went into the most holy place through the open door in 1844, what did they see? The ark. And they said, the ark. Now wait a minute. Inside the ark on earth were the Ten Commandments. So in heaven, the ark must also contain what? The Ten Commandments. So they could not have been nailed to the cross. And so they, then they continue examining. They say, but wait a minute. At the very center of the Ten Commandments was, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, there's no evidence that God has changed that commandment, you know. If that commandment was in the earthly sanctuary, and the earthly sanctuary was a copy of the heavenly, then the Sabbath commandment must still be in the Ten Commandments. Amen. And so now they discover the Sabbath. And they discover health reform through the manna. God, God wanted to teach healthful living through the manna. And, and then they discover, uh, you know, the state of the dead. Because if the judgment begins in 1844 with Adam, then Adam couldn't have gone to heaven when he died. Because God wouldn't take him to heaven before he was judged. So nobody went to heaven when they died. They say, this makes perfect sense. And I'm going to read a statement from Ellen White where she states this very thing. What else did they discover? They discovered that, they were, that the hour of God's judgment had begun. It had begun with the dead. And soon it was going to pass to the living. And what did God's people need to do on earth while the judgment was transpiring in heaven? They needed to humble themselves, afflict the soul, cry out to God, and, and overcome sin in the life to purify the temple of the soul. Because they, they realize that Jesus will not cleanse anything from the heavenly records that has not been cleansed in the human heart. Now let me ask you, are those, all those teachings the distinctive teachings of the Adventist church? Are they the, the teachings that the religious world most criticizes about the Adventist church? Do you know why? Because they have refused to move into the most holy place, they cannot grasp those doctrines. And that's the reason why they became, in 1844, the papacy before that, in 1798, but in 1844, these organizations became the synagogue of Satan. Now, don't get me wrong. The majority of God's true people are outside the Seventh-day Adventist church. They're in all of the Protestant churches. They are in the Roman Catholic Church. They are among the Hindus, the Buddhists, the Muslims. God has champions in all denominations, in all churches. They just haven't heard all the truth yet. When the loud cries proclaimed, multitudes will come out. Multitudes will leave. And multitudes will come in. Which means that the church is not going to suffer any loss. So I'm not saying that individuals in these entities are the synagogue of Satan. What I'm saying is that 
uh, these organizations are the synagogue of Satan. You say, well, how can you separate the individuals from the organization? Well, the best example I've been, been able to find is the Jewish nation in the days of Christ. Did Jesus have some really uh, serious things to say about uh, the Jewish nation? He called them generation of vipers. He called them serpents. He says, how can you escape the damnation of hell? I mean, was the Jewish nation an apostate nation? Yes, it was. It was going to be rejected by God. But were there sincere people that belonged to Judaism? Absolutely. Saul of Tarsus. Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. Nicodemus. The twelve apostles. You see, there were faithful people in the organization that was apostate. So I want to make that clear. We're, you know, we don't, we're not to look down on individuals in other churches. We're supposed to see in each one a candidate for the kingdom. But we need to present the truth. Because if we say, well, let's soft puddle it so, so we can get, kind of get along, you know, don't offend anybody, then you're, gonna off, you're going to not offend them right into hell. We have to be kind in doing it. But we have to present the truth. And I firmly believe, the more I study, that there is no church in the world that has the message that the world needs but the Seventh-day Adventist church. It has a solution to all of the problems that exist in the world today. It's the only denomination that does, the only church that does. Now we're going to, um, well, it took us a little longer than what I hoped. But I'm going to follow this quite, uh, quite carefully, what we have here. I have it on the screen so that you can follow along. Um, but um, I, I want to follow my notes pretty closely because uh, there are certain technical details that I want to uh, make sure that you, that you get, um, get them in their proper order. So let's begin. And we're going, to dedicate, we're going to dedicate both periods, the rest of this period, plus the next period, to talk about Ellen White's perspective of the Philadelphia message. We already studied the scripture perspective. Now we're going to take a look at the spirit of prophecy per perspective. In early February of 1845, Ellen Harmon, who later became Ellen White, received a vision titled, The End of the 2300 Days. The vision is found in its entirety in early writings, pages 54 through 56. You, if you wanna, uh, we're gonna, I'm gonna go through it in a few moments. Shortly after she received the vision, she wrote it out. And she sent it to Enoch Jacobs, who was the publisher of a tabloid called The Day Star. Ellen Harmon did not believe that Jacobs would publish her vision, but to her surprise, he did. When Miss Harmon realized that her vision had been published, she wrote Mr. Jacobs from Falmouth, Massachusetts, February 14, 1846. So she received this vision sometime uh, in early February. And this is what she wrote in the letter. Brother Jacobs, my vision, which you published in the Day Star, that is, as it appears in early writings 54 to 56, was written under a deep sense of duty to you, 
not expecting you would publish it. As I sent it to you, but I didn't know you were going to publish it. Had I for once thought I was to be, it was to be spread before the many readers of your paper, I should have been more particular and stated some things which I left out. So the vision in early writings is not complete. You know, when I recorded the DVD presentation, a two-hour presentation that's available from Secrets Unsealed, I was unaware of the fact that Ellen White had added to this vision. In the book, The Worship at Satan's Throne, I, I do include this information, but it's very significant that what we have in early writings is not the complete vision. It's the original vision that she sent to Enoch Jacobs. You'll see what that, why that is important in a few moments. She continues saying, as the readers of the Day Star have seen a part of what God has revealed to me, and as the part which I have not written is of vast importance to the saints, how important was what she didn't write? Of vast importance to the saints, I humbly request you to publish this also in your paper. Ellen White then proceeded to write out the original vision, with the additions that she considered to be of vast importance for the saints. This amplified vision was published in the Day Star on March 14, 1846, about a month later. It is of the utmost importance to realize that Ellen Harmon pinpointed, this is a, she gives a, a, the point at which the vision begins chronologically the specific event that marked the beginning of the fulfillment of the vision. She stated, in February 1845, I had a vision of events commencing with the midnight cry. So where does the vision begin? It begins with an event that she saw, which is the midnight cry. Now we'll talk in a moment about what the midnight cry is. By the way, the midnight cry is the type, and the loud cry is the anti-type. The midnight cry was to announce the judgment of the dead. The loud cry is to announce the judgment of the living. Now, originally, those who proclaimed the judgment hour message taught that Jesus was going to come about the year 1843. This date was later revised to the spring of 1844. When Jesus did not come as expected in the spring of 1844, those who had announced the message slumbered. In other words, they just kind of went back to their, kind of like the disciples after Jesus, you know, went to the tomb, they went back to fishing. So they went back to their customary work. But in July of 1844, just a few months after the spring, in July, they awakened from their slumber and began to proclaim what came to be known as the Midnight Cry. So the Midnight Cry begins around July of 1844. The Midnight Cry movement caught fire in early August 1844 at a camp meeting in Exeter, New Hampshire. Those who had announced the coming of Jesus about the year 1843 and in the spring of 1844 realized that they had made a mistake in their reckoning. And uh, the, the reason they uh, saw their mistake was because the Day of Atonement is not in the spring, the Day of Atonement's in the fall. 
the day of atonement, the day in their view that Jesus would cleanse the earth with fire was in the fall, not in the spring. This was the first time that the date of October 22, 1844 was set for the second coming of Jesus. And by the way, it wasn't set by William Miller. It was actually uh, uh, presented by Samuel Snow uh, at this camp meeting. And then it was embraced by many others. Now, notice how Ellen White described the revival that came from, from this uh, renewed insight into prophecy. She says, like a tidal wave, it's also known as the seventh month movement, by the way, like a tidal wave, move, uh, the movement swept over the land from city to city, from village to village, and into remote country places it went until the waiting people of God were fully aroused. So you had this great revival in the summer of 1844 announcing that October 22, 1844, Jesus is going to come in judgment. They misunderstood what the judgment meant, but they were right about the event. Now after defining the event that commenced the fulfillment of the vision, Ellen Harmon proceeded to write out the vision with the important additions. Remember that Ellen White's additions to the original vision are highlighted while my own clarifying comments are in brackets. So I've added some comments that are in red type to help us understand this vision because there's a lot of details that uh, you have to know the history in order to know what uh, was taking place. This is her vision as she describes it including the additions to what we find in early writings. I saw a throne, and on it sat the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Where do you think that throne was? It was in the holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, where Jesus went upon His ascension. Revelation 3.21, Jesus says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. So when Jesus overcame, he sat with his father on his throne. So the father and the son are seated on a throne in the holy place. And you're immediately you're going to see Ellen White is really describing Daniel 7 here, which we studied this morning. I gazed on Jesus' countenance and admired his lovely person. The Father's person I could not behold, for a cloud of glorious light covered him. I asked Jesus if his Father had a form like himself. You know, sometimes we think that God is a formless wind. God is a person. And he lives in a place. You say, well, isn't he everywhere? Yeah, he's everywhere because he's omniscient. Because he knows everything. He doesn't have to be present at GYC and in Fresno to know what's happening in GYC and in Fresno. Because he's omniscient. He knows the end from the beginning. Are you following me or not? But he, he personally sits on his throne in heaven. Jesus told us to pray, Our Father which art everywhere. No. He taught us to focus our prayers. Our Father which art in heaven. She continues saying, He's, uh, I asked Jesus if the Father had a form like himself. He said that he had, but I could not behold it. 
For, said he, if you should for once see the glory of his person, you would cease to exist. Before the throne was the Advent people. The church, I didn't put that in, in red, but I should have. Those who embraced and proclaimed the judgment hour message in 1843 and in early 1844. And the world. Those who rejected the messages of the first two angels and those who accepted them and later said they had been deluded. Is that clear? Okay. I saw a company bowed down before the throne deeply interested. That's the church. The faithful who embraced and proclaimed the judgment hour message in 1843 and 1844. While most of them stood up disinterested and careless. That's the world, nominal Christians who did not long for the coming of Jesus. So you have two groups, right? You have a, a group of individuals that are the, the worldings and those who had embraced the message and then they gave it up. And then you have those who proclaimed the message and who hung in there. Amen. Now she says, those who were bowed before the throne, that is the faithful who embraced and proclaimed the judgment hour message in 1843 and early 1844, would offer up their prayers and look to Jesus. Then he would look to his father and appear to be pleading with him. Then a light came from the father to his son and from him to the praying company. This, by the way, was the light of the first and second angel's messages. I have a lot of footnotes that further amplify these points. But I put this in parentheses, in brackets, so that we can visualize exactly what Ellen White is saying here, because we're far removed from the event. So, so then she, when she says, Then a light came from the Father to his Son, and from him to the praying company. This is the light on the first and second angel's messages. Then she says, Then I saw an exceeding bright light. And the exceeding bright light is the message of the seventh month movement or the midnight cry that began in the summer of 1844. So she says, Then I saw an exceeding bright light come from the Father to the Son, and from the Son it waved over the people before the throne. That is before both groups, those who were kneeling and those who were standing. But few of those who were bowed before the throne would what? Would receive this great light. What is the great light? The midnight cry. Many came out from under it, in other words, many forsook the movement that had proclaimed the Judgment Hour message and immediately resisted it. Others were careless and did not cherish the light and it moved off from them. Some cherished it and went and bowed down before the throne with the little praying company. This company all received the light and rejoiced in it as their countenances shone with its glory. Are you catching the picture here? So how many groups do you really have? You have two. You have those who embrace the, the first and second angel's message, because the third had not been proclaimed until eight, after 1844. But they, they embrace the first and second angel's message. That's the light that came to them. And then they embrace the greater light, the exceeding bright light, which is the, the midnight cry. But many of those who had belonged to the movement, they said, ah, we were deceived, so they left the movement. Many of those who were careless, they said, we're not interested, so you have two groups. Those that accepted the midnight cry and proclaimed it, and those who rejected it. Now, until this point, Ellen Harmon is primarily describing events 
that took place between the spring of 1844 and October 22, 1844. Because she's describing the, the first and second angel's message and she's describing the Bindai cry, that lead, that, which is the proclamation of October 22, 1844. So up to this point, Ellen White is describing uh, the Advent movement uh, from 1843 through October 22, 1844. But now notice the vision becomes very interesting. Then I saw the Father rise from the throne. Which throne? The holy place where he was seated with Jesus. And in a flaming chariot go into the holy of holies within the veil and did sit. Where does that come from? We studied it this morning. Daniel 7, 9 and 10. 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands come and their wheels, you know, and the, the Ancient of Days gets in and he goes in and, he, and the judgment, he, the, the throne is set in place. He sits and the judgment begins. And then she says, there I saw thrones, plural, which I had not seen before. And uh, I don't have time to go into this, but I believe that those thrones actually were for the 24 elders. You see, what happens, folks, is in Reve some people have been confused about Revelation 4 and 5. They think that Revelation 4 and 5 is speaking about the investigative judgment because in Revelation 4 and 5, you have uh, thrones and you have a throne and you have uh, 10,000 times 10,000. And so they say, see, uh, so they're both the same, but they're not. You see, what happens, Revelation 4 and 5 is speaking about all of those beings in the holy place. The Father is sitting on the throne in the holy place. He's surrounded by the four living creatures, the cherubim. There are the representatives of the worlds that never sinned, the 24 elders. And then Jesus arrives with, with the 10,000 times 10,000 in chapter 5. And so they're all in the throne room when Jesus ascends and presents himself before his Father. Daniel 7 simply is saying that in 1844, everybody, everybody moved. The reason you have the same beings in Daniel 7 is not because it's the same historical scene. It's because everyone who is in the holy place until 1844 moves into the most holy place. Are you following me or not? It's a different historical occasion according to the spirit of prophecy. Then she continues saying, then Jesus rose up from the throne. See, the Father goes first, sits, and then it says Jesus rose up from the throne, and most of those who were bowed down rose up with him. Why did they rise up with him when Jesus rose up? Because they had his, their eyes on him. They were focused on him. They knew he was going to move. Did the midnight cry people know that he, that, did they keep their eyes on Jesus? Yeah, they kept their eyes on Jesus, absolutely. She continues saying, And I did not see one ray of light pass from Jesus to the careless multitude after he rose up, and they were left in perfect darkness. Those who rose up with, when Jesus did, those who proclaimed the midnight cry, the faithful, kept their eyes fixed on him as he left the throne 
and led them out a little way. By the way, the, the, God's people are not literally in the heavenly temple. They're there how? By faith. They're following Jesus by faith. Because they, because they follow, why do you suppose God gave us a sanctuary? The reason why God gave us a description of the sanctuary is so that we can follow the movements of Jesus in heaven. And we can understand what the steps are. So she continues saying, those who rose up with, when Jesus did, kept their eyes fixed on him as he left the throne and led them out a little way. Then he raised his right arm and we heard his lovely voice saying, wait ye, I am going to my father to what? To receive the kingdom. Is that Daniel 7? In Daniel 7, does, does the father move first, the ancient days, and then the son of man comes on the clouds to where the father is? This is a commentary on Daniel 7. Now listen, she says, keep your garments spotless, and in a little while I will return from the wedding. Now wait a minute. I will return from the wedding. So is the wedding when we go to heaven to be with Jesus? No, the wedding takes place before. The wedding is when Jesus marries humanity when he has finished the judgment and he's revealed who are his. Then his kingdom is complete. Then he marries humanity, so to speak. And then she says, And I saw a cloudy chariot with wheels like flaming fire. Angels were all about the chariot as it came where Jesus was. He stepped into it and was born to the holiest where the Father sat. Daniel 7, once again. Then I beheld Jesus as he was before the Father, a great high priest. On the hem of his garment was a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate. And now, what I have underlined here was not in the first vision, in the first account that she gives of the vision. Very interesting little, little phrase that will come to a little bit later, why she included this. Then Jesus showed me the difference between faith and feeling. Hmm. Why would she add, then Jesus showed me the difference between faith and feeling. One of those things of vast importance for the saints. Now, let's finish and then we'll, we'll digest this. She continues saying, And I saw those who rose up with Jesus send up their what? Ah, now she's going to explain. Who lives by faith? People who what? Follow Jesus into the most holy place. I saw those who rose up with Jesus send up their faith to Jesus in the holiest and praying, Father, give us thy spirit. Then Jesus would breathe on them. Only those who entered the most holy place. Right? Then Jesus would breathe on them the Holy Ghost. In the breath was light, power, and much love, joy, and peace. Really positive up, up to this point. Are, are you following the, 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 the vision that Ellen White is having? But now there's, the, the vision is going to take a strange twist. You see, there's still a group that didn't get up with Jesus. And they're still bowing before the throne. 
Notice. She says, Then I turned to look at the company who were still bowed before the throne. What happened with them? They didn't what? They did not enter the most holy place. They continued worshiping where? In the holy. Was Jesus there anymore? No. She says, Satan appeared to be by the throne, trying to carry on the work of God. I saw them look up to the throne and pray, My Father, give us thy spirit. Then Satan would breathe on them an unholy influence. In it there was light, this is counterfeit light by the way, and much power, but no sweet love, joy, and peace. Satan's object was to keep them deceived and to draw back and deceive God's children. That is the faithful who had what? Entered the most holy place. So Satan's purpose was, was that the people who had entered the most holy place draw them what? Draw them back and deceive them. And now, underlined, you have another addition to the first vision. Who are these that remained worshiping before the throne that did not move into the most holy place? What name would you give them? The synagogue of Satan. Who is involved here in, in deceiving them? Satan. Ellen White doesn't call it the synagogue of Satan, but you know that he's describing the synagogue of Satan because this is happening during the church of Philadelphia. Now listen carefully to it. This is the scary part. And I believe that, that this is describing what is happening in the Adventist church presently. She says, as if it was bad enough for, for many Christians to have remained in the holy place and never to even ent have entered the most holy place. She says, I saw one after another leave the company who were praying to Jesus in the holiest. Would those be Adventists? Have other Christians ever claimed to go into the holiest? No. So she's describing Adventists here. I saw one after another leave the company who were praying to Jesus in the holiest, go and join those before the throne, and they at once received the unholy influence of Satan. Returning from the most holy place to the holy place to worship with others who had rejected the most holy place message. Are you with me? Pardon me? Where, where is that happening? Just bear with me. We're going we're gonna to continue studying. When? It began in 1844 after the disappointment and it has continued and will intensify and will reach its climax during the period of the loud cry. That's chapter 4 in my book, Worship at Satan's Throne. You need to get a copy of the book, really. Because, because the book has lots of footnotes that add a lot of explanation to what I'm giving here. I just want you to get the general picture. It's a very important book. I feel every Adventist should read it. And it's not because I want to sell a lot of books. 
It's because I believe that the book needs to go out. Now, in her first vision, Ellen Harmon had already explained what she meant by the Advent people in the world. Ellen Harmon saw God's people traveling on a narrow path to heaven. All of Ellen White's early visions teach the same truth. You go to early writings and look at all of her early visions. They have the same central theme. You have two groups. One group that, that enters the most holy place, that are faithful, and you have another group that refuses to enter, and they are the unfaithful. Now notice how Ellen White described this in her first vision. On this path, the Advent people were traveling to the city, which was at the farther end of the path. They had a bright light set up behind them at the beginning of the path, which an angel told me was the midnight cry. So is the first vision related to the throne vision? Yes. Now listen carefully to the response to this light. This light shone all along the path and gave light for their feet so that they might not stumble. Notice that it gives light all the way to the city. She continues saying, if they kept their eyes fixed on Jesus who was just before them leading them to the city they were safe. But soon some grew weary and said the city was a great way off and they expected to have entered it before. Then Jesus would encourage them by raising his glorious right arm and from his arm came a light which waved over the Advent band and they shouted, Alleluia! Others rashly denied the light behind them. Were there those who rejected the midnight cry? Refused to enter the most holy place? Absolutely. Others rashly denied the light behind them and said that it was not God that had led them out so far. The light behind them went out, leaving their feet in perfect darkness, and they stumbled and lost sight of the mark of and of Jesus, and fell off the path down into the dark and wicked world below. Now let me finish this uh, before the next subtitle, and then we'll take a break. A process of apostasy is described in the passage above. Those who fell off the path into the dark and wicked world below at first belonged to the Advent people who were traveling along the path. These believers first, first took their eyes off Jesus, did not follow him into the most holy place, and in consequence they denied that the midnight cry had been led by God. Ellen Harmon's first vision parallels the throne vision we have been examining. In the throne vision, those who lost sight of Jesus and stayed in the holy place were left in perfect darkness. And her, in her first vision, those who lost sight of Jesus fell off the path and were left in perfect, perfect darkness as well. It is a sobering fact that those who refuse to follow Jesus into the most holy place will also deny that the movement that proclaimed the midnight cry was led by God and they will end up in perfect darkness. And we have many in our midst, among even our theology teachers, who are denying that anything really happened in 1844. And they're teaching that, uh, that 1844 was simply a disappointment and needs to be eradicated from Seventh-day Adventist theology. And you might not be aware of that. 
but it's happening. Now let's take a break and then we'll take a look. Uh, for, let's take about uh, 15 minutes. I'll come back at, um, what time are we supposed to come back? At three. We'll come back at three. And then we'll deal with Ellen White's concept of the synagogue of Satan. This is where it's really going to get interesting. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.